Well, I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And we'll be looking at verses 11 to 27. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. If you want to look along in the Pew Bible, uh, there in front of you, uh, you can find our passage beginning on page 878. Now, you may notice that the heading above this passage, it might read something like the parable of the ten minas. And you look at that, you're probably wondering, what on earth is a mina, and why would Jesus tell a parable about them? Well, a mina was the equivalent of roughly three months' pay for a day laborer back in Jesus' day. Now, it's not a crazy sum of money, but, you know, three months' pay. It gets you thinking. Get you thinking, you know, what would I do with that kind of money? But don't dwell on that question for too long, because I want to give you a little hint about this parable. It actually has nothing to do at all with money. And that's because Jesus is identifying himself with the mina, and he's about to ask this, the crowd, the people in this crowd, what are we going to do with him? And what are we going to do with the gospel that he has entrusted us with? Those are his two big questions. And so before we read our passage, we need to first understand a little bit of the context. Now, just before this parable, uh, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us a story about Jesus and Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus, a wee little man was he, uh, was what we would call a social pariah, meaning everything about who he was and what he represented was hated by everyone in town. And yet, yet Christ went to have dinner with him. Christ went to his house. And the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the day, absolutely hated Christ for it. Their big gripe was that this man went to be a guest of a man who was a sinner. But it's the last line of that story there in verse 10 of chapter 19 that tells us everything about how we are to understand this parable. Verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's a short, quick sentence. But that's how Jesus wants, to un wants us to understand this parable. So let me say it again. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so with that in mind, let's read Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. Now, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas more. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. 
You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we consider this parable, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing as we prepare to study this passage. Let's pray. Our, our great God and Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, we do pray please for your help. By your Holy Spirit, would you help us as we study the sweet, sweet truths that we find here in these verses. May our souls find comfort and may our hearts be encouraged. And we ask these things boldly and confidently in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, I would invite you to please keep your copy of God's Word open there in front of you as we make our way through each of these verses this morning. But let's go back to our two big questions. What are we going to do with Christ? And what are we going to do with the gospel that he has entrusted us with? Now, with those questions in mind, this parable really, it comes in two big parts. And those two parts are going to serve as our two main points this morning. We're going to look first at the king's task, and then second at the king's reward. The king's task and the king's reward. So let's look at that first point. Now, we're told in verse 11 that the reason Jesus began to tell this parable was because he was near Jerusalem and because they, meaning the Pharisees, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, Jesus has already addressed the the Pharisees' assumptions of who the kingdom of God was for. He just did that a few verses earlier with Zacchaeus. And chapter after chapter before that, Luke is continuously reminding us over and again that the kingdom of God is for lost sinners. Now the focus begins to shift, and Jesus takes aim at the Pharisees' misconception of when the kingdom of God was going to arrive. So here in verse 12, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and tells them this parable. It's, it's a parable about a nobleman who left to go receive a kingdom and then return, which is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, just a few verses later, meant that he would soon be leaving this earth, but, but he will return. And we, we as Christians await that day with joy. And yet we also know that it will be a while before Christ returns. It's that, uh, it's that reference to a far-off country there in verse 12 that lets us know that it's going to be a little bit of a wait. And so this king, this nobleman that Jesus has introduced us to, he gathers his servants together in verse 13 and then gives them each amina and charges them with one task, engage in business until I come. That was their task. Basically, while their king was away, their sole responsibility was to keep on their king's business affairs until he came back. And so you might ask yourself, what is or what was the king's business? Well, if we keep in mind the context of this passage, we look back at verse 10. We're told that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's Jesus' business, which means that as Christians, that is our business. 
And so we need to be asking ourselves, what are we going to do with the gospel that our king has entrusted us with? Now, it shouldn't come as a surprise that as we go about the business of our king, that we encounter opposition, that we find that those around us aren't going to like our king or those who like our king's business. In fact, we should expect that, and that's what we see in verse 14. We see that the people within this kingdom didn't like their king at all. They wanted him out, and they were willing to rebel against everything that he stood for. Now, about a month from now, in a little less than four weeks, Laura and I will be returning home to a country that is renowned for its love of living and enjoying life. Italy is, in many ways, one of the most beautiful countries in the world, but for all of its beauty, it has an incredibly dark heart. The vast majority of people in Italy apathetically reject Jesus. Many don't want to hear about him, or they simply just don't care. And yet there are holidays that point to him. There are churches and symbols that remind us of him, but most... Most Italians see no need for Jesus. They are just like the people here in verse 14, living in open rebellion against God. Now, in this parable, we're not told why the the people didn't like their king, but the context tells us that the Pharisees, who Jesus is telling this parable to, didn't like how Jesus had been dining with sinners, healing the sick, or saving the lost. And so they probably really didn't like the idea of a king leaving his servants in charge, putting folks in charge who, in this culture and context, would have been looked down on. But here we have, here we have a king who didn't call up some other noble, some business expert, or somebody with the, you know, the right social credentials to be put in charge. No, instead, the king picked those who were marked by one singular description. They were his servants. And these servants were placed in charge of what was most important to their king. So if you're a Christian here this morning, let these two verses embolden you. And really, let them embolden you in two specific ways. First, see that Jesus has given you this task in your everyday lives. The so-called mission field of these servants was in their regular day-to-day activities. So not only has Jesus given you this task in the everyday, but secondly, Jesus has entrusted you with what was most dear to him. So whether it's in your jobs, in your homes, with your neighbors, your family, your friends, you've each been entrusted with proclaiming to those around you that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's Jesus' task for you. And so if that's the king's task, well, what then's the king's reward? Well, that brings us to our second point. Now, in verse 14, we find that the nobleman, he's received his kingdom, and now he returns as king, and then he calls his servants in. And out of the ten servants that got Amina, we're told about three of them. Now, in verse 16, the first servant, he comes forward, he's made a 1,000% return. Verse 18 The second servant, he comes forward, and he's made a 500% return. Now, it is worth noting that none of the servants claim credit for their work, nor do they claim the mina as their own. Look how they refer to it. 
It's never theirs. They each say, Lord, here is your mina. Now, we might expect these servants, we might expect them after all of their hard work to maybe be rewarded with a little break, maybe something like an early retirement, a long vacation, you know, a chance to kind of put their feet up and take things easy for a while. But that's not what we find at all. Look at verse 17. For his tenfold return, the first servant, he's given ten cities. And in verse 19, the second servant, he's given five cities. So in other words, the king's reward isn't rest. Instead, it's more and more opportunities for wider service. And so as you look at this parable, you can see by the way that Jesus tells it that all of our attention is going to land on that last servant. And in verse 20, we find that the last servant didn't do a thing with the mina. The reason that he gives in verse 21 is that he was afraid. He says that this king was a severe man. In other words, he was strict. But then he takes his accusation even further. He says, you take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So this, is, this servant, he's accusing his king basically of not doing any work. Instead, he believes this king is taking advantage of other people, essentially being a con man. And so in verses 22 and 23, the king makes it clear to his servant that if he, he truly feared him, then he would have done something, at least something with the mina. Maybe at the very least put the mina in the bank, but he doesn't even do that. With this one simple task, the servant does not do a thing. Now, at the University of Bologna, when, when students take their final exams, it's fair to say that it's quite a bit different than what happens here in the U.S. Students will spend months, nearly the entire school year, preparing for these exams, and for good reason. Now, like it is here, uh, students are given a date and time, but instead of sitting at a desk and marking answers on a sheet of paper, they have to stand before a panel of their professors. And these professors can ask them anything about the subject that they've studied. Now, I've heard horror stories about the questions that they ask. Questions like, what's the first word in the textbook? Or, or there's the most infamous one, what time is it? Which is why a lot of students will they'll wear a wristwatch because they're not allowed to turn around and look at the clock in the back of the wall. It, it takes test anxiety to a whole nother level. Now, I went to go see my friend Andrea take his geology exams. He did just fine, but it was the guy before him that completely crashed and burned. Now, every student was asked the same first question. What is the foundation of the earth? And this guy could not give a straight answer. Around and around and around he went before finally one of the professors stood up and told him to quit speaking. That student was given one simple task but he didn't do anything to prepare. That student was dismissed, and that was it. Well, here in verse 24, we have the king who tells this unfaithful servant to give his mina to the one who has proven he could make good use of it. Now, from verses 25 to 27, the lines begin to blur between Jesus' real-world circumstances and parable. But we don't need to walk away from this passage thinking that the, the moral of the story is that the rich get richer 
and the poor get poor. So please, don't read verse 26 and think that's what it's saying. That's, that's a horrible way of viewing this passage. No, the moral of the story is that even with the smallest gift, something as small as Amina, it needs to be put to good use. So as Christians, our task is not to be inactive. Our task is to carry out the business of our king. It's a simple task, but it is also a serious one because verse 27 shows what happens to those who reject the king. Now, if you are not a Christian, you may often hear Jesus referred to as the Lord of Lords or the King of Kings. And that's because Jesus has been appointed as ruler and judge over the entire world. And this verse shows us that when Christ does return, he will fulfill that office. He will faithfully execute it. And here we see the reality of those who reject him in verse 27. But, but until his return, we as his servants, we have been graciously given the opportunity to tell others around us about this Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. So let's go back to our two questions. Now, I told you earlier that this, uh, this parable isn't really asking us what are we going to do with uh, the mina, what are we going to do with the money. It's asking us what are we going to do with Christ, and what are we going to do with the gospel until his return. Some of you this morning uh, may be wondering, uh, what is the gospel? Well, thankfully, Jesus has told us. Uh, there in verse 10, he told us that he... The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In its simplest terms, that's it. That's the gospel. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, when the New Testament writers, when they, when they talk about things being lost, they're talking about things that aren't in their right place. Now, it's because of our sinful hearts that we naturally turn away from God. We, because of sin, we are naturally lost. We're just like the people in verse 14, completely unable and totally unwilling to come to Christ. We naturally don't want our rightful king to reign over us. And yet, and yet Christ came to seek and to save lost sinners like us out. Now, if you are a Christian, please take comfort here. Christ has sought you out. He sought you out and brought you back, brought you back into the household and family of God from something that was lost to something that is now found. And we as his servants, we have the joy of telling those around us this message. That's our king's task. And our king's reward is the chance to take this gospel and to tell even more people about our gracious king. Our king is going to return. Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, may we, may we as his servants, long to hear him tell us the sweet words that we see here in verse 17. Well done, good servant. Well done, good servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, may we, may we long for the day of our King's return. And as we, as we await that day, what an honor it is to say that we are servants of the King of Kings. And as we await Jesus' return, may we not shy away 
like that third servant. Wherever you have placed us, we pray please for courage as we speak to those uh, who we might be afraid to speak to, those who are lost. We do in those moments. We pray for a tone and temperament of grace, remembering far too well that we once too were lost. And may our hearts not seek rest, but desire further and wider service for king and kingdom. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, in the name of the King of Kings. Amen.